Um, Razan Zaytuna, what are the major protesters' demands? Now is to end the regime after 400 killed people since uh, the protests started, after thousands of arrested people, and actually after what happened today, after the crimes, which is still going on today in Dara and other places. In Duma, they're breaking into homes and arrested the whole families, the whole uh, men, uh, the father and the sons, everybody, dozens of every family, because you know, especially in the in the families in the suburbs, all of uh, the member of the family live in the same area. So you, 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 we got, for example, until now, ten names of one family, cousins and brothers and so on. So. It's what is going on, what the authority and the regime is a practice against the people. I don't think they will never ask for anything after that than uh, ending this regime. What about these reports of the helicopter gunship attacks, Rasan? It's for sure. We got videos, we got uh, photos of uh, of those helicopters shot people in Jusr al-Shughur. It was a real real war against Jusl al-Shughur and its neighbors during last few days. You can't imagine that hundreds of troops, tanks and helicopters went to just make this, this process against a small city like Jusr al-Shughur. It was really like war situation. And the reports of the killing of children. Um, Amnesty, I think, has more than 80 names of children who have been killed, children and teenagers. Uh, videos are emerging one by one, gruesome videos, Razan. Actually, yes. Most of the children who got killed, according to uh, our reports, were killed in their houses by snipers, when they, on, uh, by, on windows, on balcons. Some of them who are between 14 and 15 got kidnapped and arrested in the streets, like what happened when, with Hamza al-Khatib and Tamir. They were participating in, in the protest which was going to break the siege on Dara'a when they got kidnapped by the security. And after days, they were delivered to their families as dead bodies, tortured awfully. Uh, it's... it's, uh, it's uh, confirmed that the security didn't separate, didn't make any difference in dealing with Syrian people. It, it doesn't matter if the person is 80 or he is 10 years old, everybody will be treated equally in torturing, in, in killing. The Syrian citizen, he is doing the whole thing. He is the one who protests on the land. He is the one who, who, who works the journalist tool, who takes photos, who, who shoot videos, who sends this information to the media. He is doing everything by himself. About the uh, criminals or armed groups on the land, we all know the truth. We all know that the, the only terrorist group in the, in the country is this regime who has been killing its own people for more than four months, who has been arresting dozens of thousands of people only because they want their freedom. Hey y'all, welcome back to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator, researcher, writer, editor, and host of the show. Most podcasts have like three or four people doing all those jobs, and I really envy them. This is a self-directed, usually solo effort that I do aside from full-time employment and writing fiction for fun. There have been multiple times where we've had to go a week or two without new content just because I couldn't fit in the hours needed to have an episode edited on time. I've tried to get better at that. I was spending at least one or two hours every single day doing something related to this podcast, be it researching, recording, editing, or other stuff. I'd fit this in before or after work, 
And I'm sure you can, I'm sure y'all can hear in my voice which episodes I've recorded late at night after a busy day. Recently, however, I've had something happen. I've had something happen in my personal life that just threw everything off balance. My mom fell gravely ill shortly before Thanksgiving and needed to be hospitalized. It's not COVID, it's other stuff. And she's been slowly getting better for the last two weeks. She's expected to recover, but that recovery will take time. During the first phase of this ordeal, when we really didn't know what was going to happen, I couldn't concentrate on anything. In the hours before or after I'd drive to the hospital, I'd sit at my desk and couldn't make myself so much as pay lip service to working on this podcast or other projects. When my mom started getting better, I was able to slowly go back to writing and researching. But I ended up writing this intro out as a script because I don't know how to put it into words. I just couldn't record for a while. Sitting at the desk with the microphone in front of me, I just couldn't do it. But I wrote it out because I knew that I would be able to record again sometime soon. Holding your mom's hand in the ICU while a machine does her breathing for her and a bunch of monitors read out her vital signs is something I wouldn't wish on even my worst enemy. Every time I see her, but every time I visit her, I can see that she's getting better. It's going to take a while, but the progress is visible. And anyone who saw her when things were really bad would be grateful as hell for where she's at now. I don't know what to call this situation other than fucking horrible. It's among the worst series of events to happen, not only to myself, but to my family. A lot of people love my mom, and we've all been distressed for weeks. So, I guess this was naive, but we all assumed at the beginning that what's happening now would be over by now, one way or another. Call it wishful thinking or whatever. But we thought that if she recovered, she rec- she would recover quickly. I took two weeks off from work and pretty much everything else so that I could run over to the hospital whenever they allowed visitors and my mom was awake. After two weeks, I had to go back to work. It'd be callous to say that life goes on because it's certainly different now, but we do still have bills to pay. Slowly, my family is learning how to balance a gradual return to normal life with continuing to visit my mom in the hospital. As as this new way of doing things has settled, I'm gradually returning to this podcast and other projects. This episode is looking at how the Syrian revolution was organized. This is not a classic top-down centralized movement, but instead a decentralized collection of individuals and groups spread out across the country. There was no functioning civil society in Syria outside of the regime in 2011, and brave individuals needed to stand up and create it from scratch at great personal risk. We're going to look at how Syrian activists formed the local coordination committees and then talk to someone who has spent the last 10 years working as a nonviolent activist opposing the Assad regime who has greatly honored us by calling this podcast from Idlib. Ahmad is the first guest we've had on this show who is still living in Syria. And his story is among the most incredible we've heard since we started the show last March. To keep this podcast under three hours, we're going to include some of the interview in this episode and the rest in a bonus episode available on Patreon.com. I want to once again thank every one of our patrons. Thank you all. I appreciate you all from the bottom of my heart. Your monthly donations are going to be what makes this show possible. We've got several bonus episodes recorded and in the process being edited, so our Patreon page will have new exclusive content very soon. 
You're listening to What Happened to Syria, Episode 14, Community Revolution. When people talk about the Syrian revolution, we often make the mistake of thinking of it as just one big thing when it's when that has never been the case. The Syrian opposition has always been a collection of different opposition groups and ideologies. People outside of Syria, when they refer to the opposition, are typically referring to something like the Syrian National Council, or SNC, or similar entities that have sprung up over the years. The SNC is, at least on paper, a sort of government in exile for Syria. But in practice, it, it really hasn't turned out that way. The SNC has never had very much connection to the activists and other protesters on the ground in Syria. There's always been a disconnect between these, in most cases, wealthy elites who were trying to get into politics while living out of, while living in luxury in Istanbul. There's always been a disconnect between those people versus folks like Jaith Matar, for example. These young people people in their teens or 20s, some cases 30s and 40s, like Mazen Darwish and Razan Zaituna and Samar Yazbek. These people are on the ground experiencing the Syrian revolution and the violence that followed firsthand. They were the ones who were being targeted by the regime for arrest and torture and murder. So while a lot of these politicians who made their way into the SNC loved making bold public statements, they've never figured out a way to coordinate with the people who could actually be described as the revolutionaries, the protesters, and other people voicing dissent against the Assad regime and calling for its downfall. We're going to go into more detail about the SNC and the, um, I guess we could say, spin-offs of it that have arisen over the years. We're going to go over all that in a future episode. I just wanted to make it very clear that this episode, Community Revolution, I gave it that name because I want to turn away from the politicians outside of Syria and focus exclusively of the people who were on the forefront of what was back then a peaceful revolution, save for the brutal repression meted out against them by the regime. Over time, the people who were protesting and risking their lives in Syria, they figured out that they needed to coordinate with each other. It became clear over the first six months of the Syrian revolution that localized action would not be sufficient for accomplishing their goals. They needed a nationwide movement so that the regime could not overwhelm and crush them one by one, as was seen in Dara. This is what led to the formation of the local coordination committees. These were local networks of various types of people. Some, some of these people were journalists. Some of them were translators who could take Arabic language content and translated to English or other languages. Some of these people were filmmakers who would film protests, oftentimes at great risk, and then they would go to great lengths to get this film uploaded to YouTube or other websites. You can still find a lot of YouTube channels. Almost all of them were created in 2011. You can still go find some of these where all their titles are still in Arabic and they're uploading raw video footage of protests as well as times where the regime fired at those protesters. There's a lot of, to this day, you can still find a lot of YouTube channels that are just like that. And unfortunately, a lot of them stop in 2012. Like, the, they didn't put any more videos out after that. I hate to say it, but I think a lot of times it's because the person who created that channel was killed. So anyway, the local coordination committees, these were localized teams of people who had come together to reach out both to similar teams of people across 
their country and also to get the Syrian revolution out online. They, they took inspiration from the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt that were really widely publicized on social media and the international community, or at least, at least people, at least, to, at least social media users all over the world saw what was happening and they got emotionally invested in it. And you saw displays of solidarity all over the world for these revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt and then later on in other countries as the Arab Spring and other 2011 revolutions spread throughout the world. These Syrian activists realized that we got to get people across the world to support to support us in the same way if we're going to have just a small chance of succeeding. That's why one activity in particular that's widely associated with the LCCs is counting the number of people who've been killed day by day. One of the reasons why we have the kind of casualty counts that we have, at least for the first five or five or so years, was that these local coordination committees would keep track of who was being killed by whom throughout the weeks and months and years of the revolution and the war that followed. That's why day by day we have reports of Five people being killed in one village, 27 people being killed in one town, and in some cases, a hundred or so people being killed in one day in one city. Sometimes all the stuff I just described is stuff that would be happening all in the same day with even more stuff going on. There were certain points in 2012 to 2016 or so where just an unbelievable number of people are dying every single day, and it was the LCCs who were keeping track of and publicizing these deaths. This, this, this continues to a lesser extent to this day in parts of Syria that are not yet held by the Assad regime. All right, I've been rambling for a long while. Let's bring in an academic source to just make sense of what I've been trying to communicate to y'all. This is an excerpt from Dr. Samir Enabud's book, Syria. Quote, for all intents and purposes, the opposition that was born out of 2011 was new. The three main networks that emerged in the months after the uprising, the local coordination committees, LCC, the Syrian National Coalition, SNC, and the Free Syrian Army, FSA, unquote. We're getting very, very close to discussing the FSA in the timeline of the show, I think it's going to be in the next chronological episode. We're going to see the debut of the FSA. We haven't talked about them yet. We're going to very, very soon. Now back to the quote. Quote, The three main networks that emerged in, a, in the months after the uprising, the LCCs, the SNC, the FSA, were non-existent prior to the uprising, and thus owe their creation to the political opportunity provided by the protests. In 2011 and 2012 especially, there were multiple attempts to unite the political opposition, but these attempts largely failed to bring about cohe coherency or affect political change, leading to a fragmented inside-outside opposition divided over issues of political legitimacy and questions of political strategy. On almost every key political strategy question facing the opposition in the first year of the uprising, whether to engage in dialogue with the regime, support violence or nonviolence, or call for military intervention, the opposition was divided along inside-outside lines. Activists within Syria, mostly represented by the LCCs, were far removed from the politics of the exiled opposition that formed under the SNC. Mistrust and a lack of coordination between the different opposition groups created the conditions for fragmentation and the emergence of even more opposition groups as the uprising progressed. The multiple opposition groups were not only defined by their lack of horizontal coordination between one another, but even a lack of vertical coordination within the movements themselves, such as that coordination between different LCCs or even within the SNC was not effective. The LCC and the FSA had highly decentralized structures, decentralized structures, with each local committee or group operating independently of one another. There was some coordination between different cells. 
but not enough to speak of an organized, linear chain of command. The opposition movement, then, was more a collection of nodes and networks of opposition than a coherent movement with a clear hierarchical command. Unquote. That was Dr. Samir Enabud writing in his book, Syria, the second edition. So while the LCCs did some incredible work, I mean, they were arguably the real leaders of the Syrian revolution. While they accomplished some amazing stuff and made some unbelievable sacrifices, they didn't exactly accomplish their overall strategic goal. They, they, they didn't, they were never able to manifest what was seen in Egypt or Tunisia. In those cases, what really tipped the balance was the fact that the military sided with the protesters against their regimes. That's why Zain Ben Ali and Hosni Mubarak were forced out of power. That was just not going to happen, though, in the Assad regime in particular preempted that decades ago. So instead of siding with the protesters, the soldiers, and especially the Shabiha militias, they consistently obeyed their orders to shoot at the protesters. But I have to stress that the LCCs were not a complete failure as a project. They did, at least they formed the very beginnings of a Syria beyond Assad. They, not the SNC, were the beginnings of a new Syrian government. And we're going to see that the Assad regime will prioritize destroying the local coordination committees over any other entity among their vast number of enemies over the coming years. So, did the local coordination committees manage to overthrow the Assad regime? No. Did they manage to document an unprecedented amount of evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity? Yeah. Yeah. These people are why we know as much as we do about the various atrocities committed by the Assad regime. And a lot of these pe- a lot of the people who are involved in these in these organizations, a lot of these people are no longer alive or at the very least they are no longer free. A lot of these people ended up in prisons like Sednaya and when you go to a place like that, you're being tortured every day. You might end up tortured to death because it's just what happens to dozens of people in that human slaughterhouse every single day. And yeah, I'm not the first person to call it a human slaughterhouse. I, we've got an episode about Sednaya and its sim, and its counterparts coming up very soon. But for right now, let's take a look inside the LCCs and how they were created. I'm turning now to an article written by Zaina Erheim, an activist who played a pivotal role in protests in Syria. She was among the founders of the very first local coordination committees. I'm going to read an excerpt from an article she wrote for the New Lines magazine that describes the rise and fall of the LCCs. This article was published on the 10-year anniversary of protests starting in Syria. It's titled, How the Syrian Revolution Was Organized and How It Unraveled. Quote, As the uprising spread throughout the country, there came a need for coordination between people in different groups in different cities, provinces, and nationwide. That is how the local coordination committees of Syria were born. I was brought in by Razan Zaituna, a lawyer and well-known human rights activist, to help establish the nascent outreach and media effort in 2011. Zaituna was a co-founder and considered head of the LCC. I had known her for about four years. We had met at a couple of events, and I used various proxy programs to access Facebook, which was then blocked in Syria, and to read her articles and work published on blocked websites. She, too, was interacting with my critical feminist articles and initiatives, such as the first social media campaign I ran in 2009, which was the first of its kind in Syria. I was in London finishing my master's degree. And because I had uncensored internet access, Razan and others were sharing what's happening with me so that I could post in Arabic and English. It was a clear signal of my support for the uprising. So when demonstrations of the revolution started in the southern city of Dara, Razan contacted me to help reach out to Arab and international media. I did. And without any formal agreement, task lists, or scope of work, 
I became an active member of the team. According to Mazen Darwish, a lawyer and one of the founders, the LCC was actually started earlier, after the Green Revolution in Iran in 2009, which was waged against the theft of the presidential election by incumbent Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Online groups on blogs and other platforms were being formed in Syria under different topics and umbrellas, and their activity intensified after the Tunisian uprising of 2011. We were hiding behind the others' movements, supporting them, knowing that Syria was next, Darwish told me. When I joined the LCC, I was added to a general Skype room that had many activists from different parts of Syria posting what was happening in their areas. We created about 21 Skype rooms for each group, or, or Taniskiyat, a main newsroom I was in charge of, and one for translations that included mainly Syrian volunteers in the diaspora whom we identified, trusted, and invited in. Only a couple of the Skype accounts, among the dozens involved, reflected the real names of people. My alias was Zain, and many thought I was a man, a belief I didn't correct. Lots of those pseudonyms didn't even make sense as personal names, such as Cold Mountain, whom we had to call Cold all the time because it was supposedly his first name. We only found out that his name was Hassan Azari when he was arrested in Latakia in March 2012. Later, we had to post his picture as a news item on our LCC page. Our member Hassan died under torture in the regime's prisons, the post read. He was in his fifth and final year of studying pharmacology. There were also lots of free first names then, for whom we had to use their full name, like Free Duma, or just the surname, when it was usually the name of their hometown. At one point, the LCC had become a network of 70 coordination groups operated by media and street activists connected to the grassroots revolt inside Syria. It was anti-sectarian, committed to non-violence, and opposed to foreign intervention. However, that position shifted as regime violence escalated, and in early 2012, the LCC began calling on the international community to take a stronger stand against the Assad regime while recognizing the role of the Free Syrian Army, the rebel force that was beginning to coalesce. Unquote. I'm trying not to read the entire article. There's so much really important stuff that Zina Erheim writes about in her article. Like she mentions, these people, she and others were working 12 hours. A, they were spending 12 hours a day online every single day. And yeah, I'm sure lots of people today, they're like, oh, young people spending 12 hours a day online. Sure, that's every day, 10 years ago. And they're not just screwing around on social media. They're not just having fun. They're doing real work trying to publicize the Syrian revolution to an international audience and also just document what's going on. So for more on this, let's turn back to Zina Erheim's article, How the Syrian Revolution Was Organized and How It Unraveled. This was published by the New Lines magazine. Quote, We had an Arabic and English website, launched campaigns emphasizing social cohesion and nonviolence, documented news daily about detainees and victims, and sent out summaries of the end of the day, especially on Friday. Unquote. Yeah, that makes sense. Only like we've said so many times in the show, Friday's when the biggest protests happen. So naturally, Friday would be the most important day of the week for members of the LCCs as well. Quote, On a typical Friday, we would all be online and ready by 9 a.m. to report on how security forces were blocking roads or being deployed around mosques. At noon, we turned into machines, verifying, editing, translating, uploading videos onto YouTube, sending bulletins along with the videos to the media outlets we had identified ahead of time, and, and on we went until 8 p.m. when we would start reminding each other that we hadn't eaten yet, kicking each other from the Skype room so that we would have a chance to have a meal before coming back to wrap up the work of the day. We had clearly different backgrounds and ideologies. There were some conservative members, atheists, secularists, and moderates. However, the intimacy, trust, support, warmth, and passion that was clearly felt behind those pseudonyms was unforgettable. During its active years, the LCC got its funding, 
from the French and U.S. governments was mainly meant to cover the humanitarian aid work that the committees were doing. Despite being the largest and best organized of the opposition groups inside Syria then, the LCC received the least amount of external funding, perhaps because there was religious affiliation. For instance, the LCC didn't receive funds from Qatar, which opted to support the Syrian Revolution Council Commission, a second revolutionary coalition of more than 40 opposition groups inside and outside of Syria. The SRGC was established in August 2011 and gathered people with different ideologies and backgrounds, such as Zuhair al-Atasi and Mohammed Alush, who were both members of political office, unquote. We're going to have a lot more to say about that organization and those two individuals in the future. We've already talked about Sahir al-Atasi in our first Revolutionaries episode. For the most part, yeah, she's not perfect, but she's cool. I mean, compared to the compared to Mohammed Alush and, and his brothers, the Alush brothers, the guys in charge of Jaish al-Islam, those those bloodthirsty warlords, yeah, Sahir al-Atasi is cool by comparison. I want to expand on a couple of points before we transition over to Ahmad's interview. So, not knowing people's real names, even though you talk to them every day on social media, I mean, that speaks to the, the fact that most Syrians who oppose the Assad regime, whether they live inside Syria or abroad, almost all of them have to protect their identities. Almost all of them cannot reveal who they are and who they're related to because that could put themselves and their families in danger of arrest and torture. Even distant relatives can find themselves persecuted because of what some distant relatives of theirs said about the regime. This is something that I personally encounter on a regular basis talking not only to Syrians but other people from all over the world on Twitter or Discord or other apps where these are people oftentimes who live in an authoritarian nation and it's just not safe to say anything the government doesn't want you saying for you or your family. So for a lot of these people, they have these vibrant social lives online, but these people who they become pretty close to talking to almost every single day they still don't know this person's real name. They might never. The way that Zaina Erheim described calling somebody Cold Mountain, I do that. I do something very similar every day. I have friends online that I refer to as Conspiracy or Pitcher because that is their online pseudonym. And even though we're friends, they still are so guarded about their identity that I still don't know their real names. And this is especially the case with Syrians on social media. The fact that so many Syrians are on social media with uh, fake names and usually oftentimes uh, pictures of animals or cartoon characters in their profile pic instead of their real face. Because of all that anonymity, it can make it difficult sometimes to verify details. But once you look at the full context, where they're coming from and why they're doing this, I don't think you'd do anything differently if you were in their shoes. Lastly, there's the issue of foreign funding and other foreign support for the LCCs and other opposition entities. This is a highly, highly, highly controversial issue. And there is a grain of truth. I mean, Zaina Erheim flat out said the LCCs did receive funding from the outside. I did a little bit more research on this specific point, and I came across a Washington Post article from 2011, written by Craig Whitlock. The title of this article is U.S. Secretly Backed Syrian Opposition Groups Cables Released by WikiLeaks Show. This is oftentimes used by the pro-Assad side to claim that all the protesting, all the opposition activity, it was all some big foreign conspiracy, mostly having to do with some mythical pipeline from Qatar to Europe. I mean, that pipeline story is a myth. We're going to cover that in a future episode. But it, it is true that since the mid-2000s, the United States and other governments did covertly provide funding and other support, mainly through the State Department, 
for opposition groups in Syria and in other countries. Now, the fact that this is done by the State Department, the arm of U.S. diplomacy, and not by the CIA. Some people might say we're just splitting hairs saying that it's a different thing because somebody else is doing it. Yeah, if the CIA was giving covert support to the LCCs, that would that would be one thing. But this was the State Department. This was the U.S. government saying, we've decided it is in our interest to back these different opposition groups because the Assad regime has given us problems. What was the Assad regime doing in the mid-2000s causing problems for the U.S.? They were enabling insurgents to travel from Syria to Iraq. Not only Syrians, but other foreign fighters who would arrive in Syria and travel over to Iraq. This isn't some big overarching conspiracy. It's a series of events where two opposing players, the U.S. and Syria, are making moves and counter moves. And the State Department's support for Syrian opposition groups was part of that series of moves and counter moves. But nothing the U.S. could have done, nothing the State Department or the CIA could have done, nothing could have brought out tens of thousands of people, sometimes half a million people, out into the streets to demonstrate against the Assad regime. No covert operation in history has ever accomplished that, and every time they've tried, it's failed. I mean, is it true that the CIA has sometimes orchestrated coup d'etat? Yes, that has happened. But when that happened in history, it never looked like what, what we saw in Syria in 2011. It never looked like the Arab Spring in Syria or other countries. And going back to the series of moves and counter moves, I want to read an excerpt from Craig Whitlock's article for the Washington Post. Quote, The U.S. money for Syrian opposition figures began flowing under President George W. Bush after he effectively froze political ties with Damascus in 2005. The financial backing has continued under President Obama, even as his administration sought to rebuild relations with Assad. In January of 2011, the White House posted an ambassador to Damascus for the first time in six years. Unquote. That was from a Washington Post article titled U.S. Secretly Backed Syrian Opposition Groups, written by Craig Whitlock. What Craig Whitlock described right there, that is an approach that U.S. foreign policy has been taking in numerous countries throughout the 21st century. Now that we no longer live in a bipolar world split between the U.S. and its allies versus the Soviet Union and its allies, now that we live in a, dare I say, multipolar world, th there are many in the U.S. government who have come to see the necessity of old-fashioned real politique dealing with dictators, while also simultaneously pressuring them to be a little less loathsome, that that pressure comes in the form of assisting people who want to organize protests, that, that comes in the form of assisting activists. These people should not be seen as spies. These people I'm talking about, these Syrian activists who receive direct or indirect support from the U.S. State Department, I personally don't believe they should be listed as spies, just as I also don't believe that WikiLeaks should be considered a Russian intelligence front. I don't believe that to be the case. Have they sometimes received material from people related to Russian intelligence? Yes, that has happened. There, there's a difference between some entity deciding to give you support versus actively seeking it out. There is a difference of intent. These protesters were not intending to help the United States take over Syria. They were trying to improve Syria for their own reasons. And they were willing to accept whatever support they needed to in order to make that happen. Similarly, WikiLeaks, as far as I know, I have, I went through a phase where I was reading and reading and reading about the whole Trump-Russia stuff. I tried to find proof that WikiLeaks is the sort of Russian intelligence front company that a lot of people have tried to paint them out to be, and I really couldn't find any evidence for that. I really don't think you can make a case that WikiLeaks is somehow aligned with the Russian government when it's really more so the case that sometimes they kind of intersect with each other, but that's less, that's got more so to do with Russia and their machinations than with WikiLeaks and whatever they're doing. I apply that same exact standard to the Syrian opposition protesters and the U.S. State Department and other U.S. government entities 
that provided them with various forms of support. There is a tendency that I'm trying to go against with this podcast, and that tendency is to immediately look first and foremost at the foreign powers, the U.S. or Russia or Iran, whatever foreign powers are intervening. Those are the ones we look at, and the Syrians on either side, they're just tools, and we're just going to ignore them. We're doing the exact opposite with this podcast. This podcast looks at those Syrians, and then we'll examine their relationship with those outside foreign powers. But in that order, not the other way around, which happens way too often in other media. So I'm sorry if I've done a bad job trying to go into this thing about foreign funding and foreign support for the local coordination committees and other opposition entities. I'm sorry if I've done a bad job. I'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible because we got a great interview to get to with Ahmad. Someday, and yeah, I know I say this all the time, someday we're going to do an episode that just deep dives all the stuff that I tried to summarize in the last 10 minutes. But for now, we move on to our interview with Ahmad, a Syrian civil society activist who has spent the last 10 years experiencing all kinds of different horrors while remaining committed to nonviolent opposition to the Assad regime. There was basically no such thing as civil society. What, what was it like trying to create something that hadn't really existed before in Syria, at least in your lifetime? Yeah, of course, uh, at the first beginning, at the first few weeks, uh, uh, when the revolution began in 2011 uh, in Dara, uh, we started, you know, to ask each others, you know, we, we start to break this wall of fear. Uh, why this is happening? Why are uh, why why the, the government shooting us in the street? What have we done? Why they are calling us traitors? We just you know in the first beginning we were just calling for uh, um, uh, we, we we don't ask for uh, Assad to go. We just ask for uh, some uh, simple rights for us. Uh, we asked uh, to uh, have uh, a little bit of freedom. Uh, you know, we, we asked to, uh, um, you know, hold the uh, corrupt corruption uh, statesmen uh, accountable. This is very simple uh, rights, but uh, we were surprised what uh, the regime did and the brutality uh, of the uh, uh, intelligence agencies and even the army, you know, they deployed the army in the cities just weeks after the uh, peaceful uh, peaceful uh, protest. So we started to ask each other why this is happening. Someone should be, someone should hold accountable for this. Uh, the criminals, whether they were uh, officers in the army or intelligence, or even the president should uh, be uh, under the law. They should be under tri trial. We start to ask some, some questions like that. And uh, we started with uh, very small groups in the university. I believe that the university was uh, the heart of the revolution in Aleppo, in Aleppo city. We start to form, you know, uh, small groups of the students, and uh, we uh, started to uh, plan for the protest. And actually, first uh, main protest was uh, in uh, June, June 2011, in uh, the University of Aleppo. 30 June. I still remember the the the, the date. 30 of June. It was a, it was very very hot day, and the number of you know police, uh, intelligence agents agents. Uh, it was it was way out of our number, and uh, we started the protest. And it it took only f it took only you know a few minutes. Most of us were arrested. Uh, I was lucky 
uh, I was not, I was not, but uh, I, I lost a lot of my friends that day and we never see them again. Then uh, we started, you know, to develop our work. Uh, we start to, uh, you know, plan, uh, we start to plan more for the protest and we start to uh, get uh, communication with other provinces and uh, some bodies, you know, uh, uh, started to form at that time, the Revolution Committee, the, uh, uh, I, I, don't, I forget actually some, some of the names, coordination, coordination. Uh, the local coordination uh, councils? Yeah, the coordination union, uh, the SRGC, Syrian Revolution General Committee. We started to, you know, communicate with uh, other uh, provinces, and you know, the 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 violence uh, raised gradually, and uh, we started to not only protest, but uh, we, uh, you know, we engaged in more, more than uh, more and more activities advocating for uh, other provinces. You know, in that time, in the summer of. Uh, 2011, uh, the, the revolution in Aleppo was, uh, it's not as the, the level, the high level of other provinces yeah. like Hama or Dara or Banyas. So, uh, or Homs, yeah, of course, Homs. Uh, we started actually uh, as a civil society, we started to uh, receive IDPs from Homs. We, we were, uh, you know, um, uh, securing them in Aleppo providing them with uh, essential uh, essential support, uh, providing them with with homes and home uh, houses and something like that. And uh, step by step, uh, you know, uh, we were uh, actually, we were uh, dealing uh, as uh, um, in reaction. And this is uh, was the first, I think, the, the first thing that we did uh, wrong. We had to be proactive, uh, and uh, but but you know we don't have the basics. We don't have the knowledge. Uh, we were only few uh, few uh, university students uh, against uh, against uh, intelligence agencies who have uh, who have tens of years of experience in uh, oppression and uh, you know. Uh, and so it, 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 it there there was no balance between our uh, between between us and them. We lost a lot of, uh, of great people because of that, because our uh, you know maturity. Uh, but it's you know it's a price we had to pay. That's a lot. I've got I've got like a bunch of questions to ask based on what you <laughs> just on what you just told me there. Um, first off, I'm curious. Yeah, I mean you guys lost it ton of people in 2011 yeah. and then even more in 2012 what yeah. what impact do you think that had on events in Syria in the long run well actually with every guy we lost we were more determined to continue i think this is the most impact we had with every drop of blood we were more determined to continue and to go to the next level until we, we reach uh, a level, uh, the level of, you know, direct, uh, in direct, uh, direct parallel with the regime. Uh, we didn't want to, for me, I didn't want to reach that point to hold a weapon against uh, the regime. But when they attack you uh, in your home and th they just want to kill you because of uh, your opinions, you have to defend yourself. This is, you know, natural instinct. Uh, but we didn't manage this uh, perfectly. Uh, so Especially it, if they come yeah. for your family. Yeah, of course, of course. I lost a lot of my family, of my friends. They didn't do anything. And the regime was uh, at the first very, very, they used very violent uh, activities uh, against us. We didn't, we didn't, actually didn't re realize why they, they are doing this. Why all this brutality? Why all this uh, violence? Uh, you don't have to do all of this. All what Bashar al-Assad had to do is 
to go to the streets and meet the people. That's only what he needed to do, but he didn't. So uh, he sent his army. So for the first time in my life, I saw tanks in my cities and and, and uh, other towns. And uh, I was asking myself, oh my God, tanks? Why? Why they are sending tanks against us? We don't have weapons. We don't. We don't. We don't even. We don't even hold a knife in our protest. This is. I'm talking to be to be you know to be more specific. I'm talking about the first six months. And himself talked about this. He said, uh, in the few first months of the uprising, uh, it was peaceful. Uh, there were there were no weapons. And it, it's just people in the streets. I, I can remember the number uh, in June, in June 2011, just we, uh, a week before the army uh, occupied Hama, there, uh, there were uh, almost uh, 7 million people all across Syria in the streets. Wow. This number, yeah, this number, it was, it was, it was a miracle, you know. We are we are twenty with we are twenty uh, million people live in Syria, and when you have seven million, you you, you are talking about one third of the people, and it, excluding the you know uh, 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 the old people and the children, it's more than half of the people in the street who break who break the wall of fear. There were million in the in their homes. Uh, they were they were with us, but they 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 were still afraid. So uh, I think uh, this is the 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 more uh, the most uh, important impact. And with time, people uh, convinced that okay, the only solution is to the regime to go down. This is the only solution. It's it's very hard. Yeah, and it's very unfortunate, but this is the, the only solution. After, you know, months and months of peaceful uh, protests, and thousands of people get killed. What would you say the relationship was between um, civil society? What, what was the relationship between Syrian civil society and the armed opposition? Uh, <laughs> it's very complicated. Um, let, me, let, me, let me say that... Uh, the, the armed faction and the armed group in the position developed uh, uh, in a way uh, faster than the civil society. And this is something uh, I personally believe, something that the regime needs, that the regime demands for. And they pushed uh, in this direction. You know, just a month after the revolution started, the regime released hundreds of jihadists yeah. uh, from the prisons, you know, in Sednaya. And most of those became the leaders of the uh, um, armed groups. We had uh, a lot of conflicts. Me personally, I get into many conflicts uh, against them. Wow. And they don't like me. Yeah, they don't like me. Um, yeah, we had a lot of trouble with them. Uh, they, to be honest, uh, most of the most or many of the armed group, they uh, they they didn't. I don't know how to say this. They didn't go the way that we were in. Different vision. Yeah, they have. Uh, we 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 uh, demand them to keep the uh, keep the, the 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 violence in uh, very certain areas. Uh, for uh, very specific purposes, just to protect the people. We don't need uh, more than that. We just want to protect the people. Uh, the weapons should be uh, should be dedicated for this purpose. But uh, yeah, we I admit it. We failed because uh, we didn't have you know the maturity, the experience, the knowledge. And I told you the regime pushed all uh, pushed uh, the, the events to be uh, um, in this way. They wanted to, to be uh, an armed revolution. This is their, their field, you know. They, the regime took us to the, to, to the place that uh, he feels, uh, you know, uh, comfortable. And uh, 
Unfortunately, uh, he managed to do this. It, it makes a lot of sense, though, because like the, the regime has always prioritized eliminating forms of opposition that the outside world could accept. You know, they've yeah. always prioritized yeah. the most decent factions while yeah. mostly leaving the jihadists alone until they become a problem. That's why in the prison uh, they use torture against civil activists, peaceful uh, protests, and they didn't use torture against the jihadists. Uh, this is this is very remarkable, and we saw it in our you know, in our eyes. Uh, the regime was uh, very careful to arrest and eliminate the uh, the civil activists, and they didn't care about the people who uh, who hold the weapon, uh, and he, they didn't uh, care about the. Uh, you know the state, the, the situation of uh, armed group. Uh, they ignore them and they uh, let them to grow. Uh, in, the, in, in the other hand, they were very determined and all, um, allocated all the resources against the civil uh, activists. So uh, they got to the point, you know, in 2013, where the revolution, uh, you know, lost a lot of. No, it's uh, civil uh, faith, you know, and uh, there were this, uh, you know, extremist uprising, and and in 2013 the regime said, okay, now you can see ISIS, uh, Qaeda, and other factions now in Syria. Now you believe me uh, that I'm fighting the terrorists, and yeah. unfortunately the world believed him. Yeah, yeah. the world believed him, and then, you know get complicated we had russia we had uh, america turkey and you know the the rest of the story but uh, the regime yes uh, for me personally i think the regime the the turn point was in 2013 it's not 2015 when russia came no it's 2013 when uh, the uh, extremists uh, control the the um, control the situation I think here uh, Bashar Assad uh, felt comfortable at this point. That's when he started using chemical weapons, at least more frequently. Just, just imagine that they killed, they killed just in prisons, just in the jail, they killed more than one, uh, one, one hundred thousand people. All of them were activists. You are talking about eliminating uh, a group of. Uh, complete group of society so what what happened to us uh, it, it didn't happen to 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 anyone you know we lost a lot of our uh, we lost uh, of our symbols figures uh, so in, in and and by the way when even when the extremists came to the power they 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 complete this and they, uh, you know, they arrested the activists and they killed a lot of activists. So we were, you know, we were in the middle of the battle where uh, the regime and the extremists are killing us and we, we have no protection. It was very, very difficult. Yeah, like you were saying, I mean, the outside world doesn't understand that people like you are threatened by both the regime and the extremists. Yeah. They conflate you they conflate people like you with the people who are trying to kill you. Yeah, yeah. So when, when you know, after this, after 2013, uh, every Syrian who is against al-Assad became, uh, by default, uh, a terrorist. And for me, this is a lot, you know, it, it hurts me a lot. You know, I was devastating uh, at this point because uh, I felt, you know, uh, that uh, we are really alone, you know, we are really alone in the middle of, you know, monsters. And uh, in, despite all of this, they consider us as monsters. Yeah. So, yeah, it, you know, many times I was just this close to collapse because of this. Wow. It's only, I had only my mission. I had uh, this mission in life. You know, I, I was dreaming about, you know, a democratic country, uh, 
a, a peaceful country. This is this is was my dream, and even this dream they took it away from me. They consider me as a terrorist. So uh, it's you know it's really it's really difficult to describe how we felt, and we still feel like this. Uh, and this is you know maybe the main reason that pushed a lot of activists to to leave the country because they felt okay there's there's no point. Uh, to stay in Syria. We have to leave. Let them fight, let the extremists and the regime fight, and maybe we came back after 10 years, 20 years, I don't know how, and we complete our mission. So this is this was the main reason, I think, that pushed many, many of the activists to leave the country. Because it was, you know, it's not useful anymore to stay. It's not, for me, it's not about the shelling. It's not about the security situation. It's not about all the atrocities that I witnessed. It's just about that, okay, why I am here? Uh, there is no point to stay here. This interview with Ahmed floored me. This guy has spent the entirety of the Syrian conflict in Syria. Almost the entirety. Almost the entire 10-year period. That's extremely rare. And the stories he told were some of the most intense, emotional, and introspective I've come across doing this show. Ahmed really, really stands out among our several amazing guests. We couldn't fit Ahmed's entire interview into this episode because he told stories from 2011 all the way up until 2019 and later. The full interview will be released soon as a bonus episode on our Patreon page. Ahmed, thank you again for coming on the podcast and telling your story. Thank you for listening to What Happened to Syria, a podcast about the country, the people, and their impact on the wider world since 2011. This has been our 14th episode, Community Revolution. Follow us on Twitter at SyriaPod so you can stay up to date with future episodes. You can, e- you can also email us at whathappentosyriapodcast at gmail.com. We encourage anyone to reach out to us if you think we got a detail wrong or if you have information relevant to the topics we discuss. If you are Syrian, part of the Syrian diaspora, or have otherwise been personally impacted by events in Syria since 2011, please reach out to us. We'd love to have you on the show. If you like what you heard and want to support future episodes, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash whathappentosyria to support us for as little as $1 a month. You can access bonus episodes for just $3 a month and join our Discord server for $5. You can also get fan-requested content and a shout-out in each episode when you join as a VIP patron for $20. Shout-out to our patrons on Patreon right now, Jaeger DePato and Evan Kennedy. We really appreciate you guys and all your support. Thank you to all of our listeners. I'm Sean Hastings, the creator and host of What Happened to Syria. We'll see you next week. Oh, my God.